All right, so for this morning, um, we are on lesson 23 of our study of deity and decree. So this is the last study to kind of wrap up where we've been. And uh, so normally with Sunday schools, what we have done in the past is we do like a Q&A. But um, uh, with this one, I, think, I don't think we're going to end up closing like that just because normally we give folks a couple weeks heads up, people start thinking of questions. That didn't really happen. So instead, we're going a little bit of a different direction. So what we're going to do this morning is we're just going to spend some time thinking about the knowledge of God and, and just spending some time almost like a summary and cap, right? So here, we, here we've walked through who God is, right? We've thought about him in his essence. We've thought about him in his person, right? God being triune, and then we've thought about him as he purposes all things in himself, right? His decree. And really, what, what this is an opportunity for us to step back, right? And to behold the grandeur, and to, to really slow down, and to, to think about what does God intend for us to do with a knowledge of himself, right? So, and so what we're going to do is spend some time thinking about the knowledge of God as really the, you know, capstone uh, to, to help us kind of draw to a close. Um, uh, and that, I pray the Lord will help us to encourage us, right? So we take this with us and it would bless and strengthen our souls and God will be glorified in all these things. So with that, I want to start out with a question. Now it's not intended to be rhetorical. So I am looking for uh, the raising of hands, if you will. What does it mean to know God? What does that mean, right, when we say that, to know God? I see, it, it looked like you were almost. <laughs> I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I was just going to say there's a difference about knowing about someone and knowing the person. Yeah. So first of all, it's a personal relationship. Yes. Yes. I'll just start there. No, I like that. that. I think that's a really, that's a really good, helpful distinction. Yeah, difference between knowing about God and knowing God. There's something personal in knowing knowing a person. Yep. What else? What else do we think about when we think about knowing God? Norm. For me, it would be when I read the text. It's not academic. It's not for somebody else. Yes. It's him speaking to me. Yes. Once he does that, I'm encouraged to respond. Yeah, 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 that's helpful, right? That there's, there's something uh, personal that God is speaking to you. You even see the scripture address us that way, right? Like in Hebrews 3, um, it, it says, you know, that, that, that God was speaking to them, right? Talk, talking about the scripture, right? But they hardened their heart. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a sense in which, yeah, no, that's helpful. That's good. What else? Yeah. So it made me think of uh, Exodus 33 when Moses says uh, to God, So now I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you, so that I may find favor in your sight. See also this, that this nation is your people. Yes. Yeah. To know him, to do what would please him. Yes. It's a connection there. Yes, yeah, exactly. And that's an important connection, right? As we know God, there's something that happens to us, right? That, that's reflected, yeah, in, in, in his will, right? And implied in that is God is revealing himself to us, right? And, uh, and, that, and that speaks to God's sovereign initiation, right? God revealing himself to us. Yeah, that, that's helpful. Yeah, Brian. I think uh, 
knowing God and knowing like the full scope of God, not just partial truths or what we want it to be or picking and choosing. Yes. Kind of what, what we think God is is what scripture reveals. Yes. The full truth of God. Uh, and then we talk about knowing it, but even though we can't understand it fully. Yes. The full scope of God. Yes. So God is in a sense understandable and yet incomprehensible, right? Like we don't have the, the, the full the full attaining. Yeah, and I think, um, uh, um, yeah, I think that's super helpful. I like that. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful. So, and you guys are hitting on a lot of things that we're going to hit on this morning. And that's this, um, uh, that uh, uh, Calvin had said, and so he, he had formed a little catechism, right? And... Uh, um, or, or maybe I want to say this way. Um, so we're, we're familiar with the, uh, the, the, the Westminster uh, Catechism, right? Like the first question, what is the chief end of man? Or what is like man's highest purpose, right? And the response is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And uh, it's interesting. So, right, so the, that was the Puritans, the 1600s. So Calvin in the 1500s, so he, so, you know, it's a common, right? Everyone would write a catechism. So in the 1500s, Calvin in his commentary, or his, his catechism, the way he opened it up was, what is the chief end of man? And it was to know God. And I don't think there's really a difference, right? To know God uh, is, is, is to, uh, to, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, right? Because you get that personal aspect, but yet God is still center stage, right? Receiving, receiving all the glory. So... So on your notes, what I want to do is start out that the scripture talks about two major aspects when we think about the knowledge of God. And, uh, and I want to hit on both of those just so we can make a difference, right? And we're talking about knowledge of God. Uh, there, there's more aspects that we could add, but really we're talking about after sin entered the world, how do we understand knowledge about God or the knowledge of God? So turn to me first to Romans chapter 1, right? Because... There is, there is a knowledge about God that all men and women know naturally, and it is enough to condemn us or for God's judgment to be just, right? But it's not enough to save us. So look at me at Romans chapter 1, and we'll read uh, verses uh, 18 through 23. Can I have a volunteer read uh, verses 18 through 23? Yeah, Matt. God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. But his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. All right, excellent. So I want you to notice, right, multiple times talking about knowing God, that men naturally know God, but what do men and women do naturally right after the fall with the knowledge of God. What happens? What's that? Suppression. Yeah, they suppress it. It becomes corrupted. They, they take it, they put it in a box, and then they sit on it so that way it doesn't get out, right? Because they exchange it for something else. What do they exchange it for? 
Yeah, for lies and idolatry, right? We take the true God and instead we exchange it for an idol, right? I think it was Matthew Henry said that uh, the greatest blessing for man was to be made in the image of God and the greatest curse for, for, for man was that they would make God in their image, right? That's the, that, that's the idea that's going on here in Romans chapter 1. So we see, so now turn to me uh, one book over. Go to 1 Corinthians 1. So if that talks about man's natural knowledge of God, so there's a sense in which we can say everyone knows God, right? But it is not in a saving way, and it is not normally how the scripture will refer to it, right? But it's that men and women have a natural knowledge of God as a part of being created in the image of God, right? But what we do with that, right, is we suppress it. And that requires special grace, right, effective grace. So now look at me at Romans, or I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 1, and then can I have someone read verses 21 through 24? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But those who are called both Jews, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. All right, excellent. So notice that, right? So in verse 21, picking up on that same theme, right? That the world did not know God through wisdom. Now, it's using this in a different way than Romans 1, right? It did not know God in a saving way, right? From the wisdom of the world. And God used that to take the folly of the world, which is what? Christ in him crucified, right? Uh, the complete opposite of what human achievement can, can appeal to. And, uh, and so instead... The implication is we know God savingly through the foolishness of the message preached, which is what? Christ and him crucified. So I want that to be like the two nuances, right? Now, on your notes, uh, I, I, I thought this was helpful, right? So I'm really going to follow this morning um, two, major, two major geyser books, right? So Joel Beakey and uh, Paul Smalley have a systematic theology, reformed systematic theology, where they have a little introduction about the knowledge of God, which was super helpful. So we're going to hit on that. And then the end, Lord willing, we'll have time. We're also going to weave in J.I. Packer's Knowing God, right? Which is a very helpful book kind of talking about this. So one other piece that I thought was helpful was uh, Greg Nichols. So in his lectures in systematic theology, what I want to do, and for time's sake, I, I provided the, um, the verses, and uh, I'll, I'll let you kind of read through a reference those later, just for time's sake. Uh, we're just going to kind of work through. So what I'll do is I'll go ahead and read this. And then again, for later, you guys can reference the verses, which I thought were very helpful. So he says, <clears throat> universal knowledge of God through creation and conscience is inadequate to save sinners. Thus, scripture affirms repeatedly and clearly that those in a state of sin do not know God. Jesus affirms that the world doesn't know God. John 17, 25. Paul asserts that lost Gentiles don't know God, 1 Thessalonians 4.5, 1 Corinthians 15.34. Scripture asserts that lost nations have no knowledge of God, Psalm 79.6, 2 Thessalonians 1.8. Even among those born under the Old Testament, many didn't know God, Jeremiah 9.3 and 6. Even some priests, like Eli's sons, didn't know him, 1 Samuel 2.12. Jesus confirmed this unpopular truth. He courageously told some of his countrymen that they didn't know God because they rejected God's son, John 8, 19. He accurately predicted that some sinners, because they didn't know God, would persecute his disciples, John, 10, John 16, 3. 
Even some who profess the Christian religion don't know God. Jesus told some who professed to be his disciples in John 8.31 that they didn't know God in John 8.54 and 55. John warned professing Christians that men who say they know God yet live wickedly are liars, 1 John 2, 3 through 4. Even those who now know God have not always known him. The Galatians only came to know him after they turned from their idols, Galatians 4, verses 8 through 9. So again, I I thought that was helpful because it's a helpful summary when we talk about the knowledge of God, right, and, and what we have, right, as the privilege of the saints in comparison to the, what the world lacks, right, what they lack, and, and truly what they lack in their perversity, and what we, at one time, prior to our conversion, were in the same lot. So with me on your notes, uh, look with me at, at number one, right, so then let's kind of hop in, so then what is the true knowledge of God, right, that the knowledge of God that we have in Christ as saved sinners, so, uh, and, and so this major bullet and then the second major bullet on your notes, uh, the priority of knowing the true God, are co- they, they come from Beaky and Smalley's Reformed Systematic Theology. So like we said, to truly know God is to have a saving knowledge of God. To know God in a saving way is to know God as our Lord and Savior personally by grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. We know God only through Christ and Him crucified, right? Like we read in 1 Corinthians 1. We only know God in a saving way through the gospel or the good news and by believing on the Lord Jesus. And what undergirds all of this, right, essentially is who God is, right? And that's what we've been covering the last, you know, 20-something weeks, right? What undergirds all of this is our knowledge of God, right? God does what He does because He is what He is, and because of who he is, right? And that's why in Isaiah 40, verse 9, right, when, when Isaiah uh, is done prophesying about all the condemnation, right, for the most part, and coming judgment, and then Isaiah 40, right, it, it's to speak comfort. And in verse 9, what he says is, Israel, behold your God. And so what the true knowledge of God does is it orients us to do that very thing, to behold God in all of his glory in worship. Now, Beaky and Smalley, they, they provided this helpful quote from um, uh, Wahamas Albrakel, who is a, a, a Dutch theologian. And he said, the foundation of religion, on your notes, is the character of God. And truly, I think he's, he's hit the nail there, right? That it is God who undergirds all things when we think about theology or the study of God, right? Everything else kind of branches out from there. <clears throat> so what is it to know God? Well, we know that to know God is to trust God. So if you look at your notes, right, there's a quote there from Beaky and Smalley. Look at what it says there. If I can have a volunteer read, however, when, I'd be willing to read that. Thanks, Sabrina. nature and perfections. 
thy infinite power and wisdom and faithfulness and goodness, which make God a most fit and proper object for trust. Yeah, I love that, right? So how David in Psalm 910 puts that connection, right? To know God, to know his name is to trust him, right? As God reveals himself. And as Matthew Poole just helpfully kind of ties some of those together. So then the question for us this morning is, how should we pursue knowing God? Right? How should we do theology, the study of God, right? How it orients us to these things. So Beaky and Smalley, they add in the, in the quote there that you can see <clears throat> under we must. We must never study God as we do other subjects that, seek to, that we seek to master. Rather, this great subject must master us. We may not study God the way a scientist studies a species of fish. We must study the Lord as his disciples. Our posture must be worship, and our theology the fuel of doxology, or praise and worship, right? Doxa, glory, going upwards, right? Just as Paul's deepest theological reflections propelled him into praise. So turn with me, if you're in 1 Corinthians, go back to Romans, right? Romans chapter 11. And what they're getting at here is, you know, some have called, uh, you know, the book of Romans, right? If the whole Bible is like, uh, you know, the crown jewels, you know, then Romans would be like the one that sits in the front, right? Uh, now, whether or not you agree with that, that's fine. But, but there's something to be said of, of the depth of which Paul addresses some of the things that we find in the scripture in the book of Romans, right? And look at his reflection, right? After spending 11 chapters working through God's purpose in saving mankind, right? And how it weaves all throughout the Old Testament. Then he draws back, right? To see God's purpose and all these things. And what does he do in verse 33, right? His response, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor, right? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. And then here we see this doxology, right? As though these were not um, uh, uh, doxological. We see this, 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 this ultimate doxology. To him be glory forever. Amen, right? So you see that trajectory, right? It's like leading up and then response, and so in the same way, when we think about the knowledge of God, that's what it's doing. When we study theology, when we study God and who he is and his works, what he does, right? That's what should happen, right? It should propel us in that direction, right? Where we respond in worship and doxology. So, and, and I love these, right? So just pulling from a couple of Puritans uh, that, were, that were really helpful, right? Um, kind of some of the, the, like, you know, the, the, the architects of the Puritans, right? Some of the chief trainers with the Puritans. So look with me on the two quotes there on, um, on understudying God, under theology. So William Ames said, theology is the doctrine of living to God. And William Perkins said, theology is the science of living blessedly forever, right? So we want to wed this knowledge with worship, right? And living out what this means experientially. You'll, you'll hear that term that gets used, right? It means that there, there's, there, there's all of us that becomes involved as we know God. It's not simply an intellectual exercise, or as Sabrina said earlier, facts that we know about someone, right? So any questions or comments with uh, thinking about point one, about the true knowledge of God, before we hop into the priority of knowing the true God? Any, any, any thoughts, questions, or comments? 
All right. All right, let's go ahead and hop into number two. The priority of knowing the true God. Oh, actually, you know what? I'm sorry. Before we go there, I didn't, uh, I didn't sync my notes and uh, your notes. So I actually put stuff in your notes that I didn't in mine. So just go back real quick. So we're not done with one. And then we'll go to two. So go back to number one. So in J.I. Packer, in, in knowing God, that I thought was really helpful, right? So he kind of walks through this nuance between knowing God and knowing about God, right? And how significant that is, right? And so, one of, so and he spends, you know, two or three chapters kind of helping to develop this, right? How we should think about it, how it should orient us. And then, and then the rest of the book is, you know, the, the beauty and glory and majesty of God. But look at this quote at the end. I thought this was super helpful, right? Because knowing God is not apart from knowing facts about him, right? That, that, that it, it works in together. And so Packer says here on, on your quote on the bottom of page one, how can we turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God? The rule for doing this is simple, but demanding. And how true this is. It is that we turn each truth that we learn about God into a matter for meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise to God. Meditation is the activity of calling to mind and thinking over and dwelling on and applying to oneself the various things that one knows about the works and ways and purposes and promises of God. And I thought that was extremely helpful, right? So the key is not, how do we know God? It's not you just keep reading more, right? But it's that, in fact, we have to slow down and chew on and meditate and apply to ourselves the very truths that we've gained, right? And I think there's something very precious about that. All right, so now you can go to the other page. So page two, or I'm sorry, page two, point two. The priority of knowing the true God. Right, so again, pulling from Beaky and Smalley here. And like we started out um, uh, 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 earlier talking about Calvin, uh, uh, Beaky and uh, Smalley, they say here as, as a quote, Calvin began his catechism with a strikingly familiar question. What is the chief end of human life? And he answered, to know God. And I like what they do here with this quote because this really I found very helpful in orienting ourselves, right? They say, humans are theological by nature. To be truly human is to be God-centered. And I want you to stop and think about that for a minute, right? Because sin and its perversity does the very opposite, right? It makes us the center. But, but really being restored by grace, we're being restored to our true humanity and taking it to its ultimate fulfillment, which is resurrection life, right? Permanent, eternal life uh, in fellowship with the Trinity, right? But So like he says, to be truly human is to be God-centered. When we are self-centered or man-centered, we are not living independently of God, but we are foolishly reacting against him. And Augustine said, thou hast formed us for thyself and our hearts are restless till they find rest in you, right? And they come to the right conclusion where they say, therefore, the knowledge of God is central and supreme for all of life, right? So we think about that, right? So it's kind of this overarching principle that everything we learn, everything we know is kind of orienting around this very thing, that we know God or that we 
glorify God and enjoy him forever, right? It's all kind of feeding into that. So, so then what they do is they break it out into four major points. And I thought, I thought these were helpful, right? Um, so the first one here, and I love this, knowing God is the pinnacle of human privilege, right? So we shouldn't take this as a light thing to know God, right? As valuable and as precious as he is. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said, uh, nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing will so magnify the soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity, right? Where truly it's like an ocean and we can't go to the depths. Turn with me in your Bibles. Go, go to the book of Jeremiah. So I know we hit this once or twice before, but we're going to hit it again, right? Because God himself, God himself puts this priority on knowing him. And truly, how it is the pinnacle of human privilege. So in Jeremiah 9, sorry, I think I said Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24. Jeremiah 9. 23 and 24. So we'll go and read what the prophet says. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Who'd be willing to get that for us? All right. Thus says Yahweh, let not a wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am Yahweh, who shows love and kindness, justice and righteousness on the earth, Yeah, man, isn't that stunning, right? It's like, what's God's takeaway when he brings man to the top of the mountain to meet him, if you will? It's to know him, right? That, That he, it's not his wisdom, his might, his money, or anything else. It's that he understands and knows Yahweh. He knows God. Yeah, and I like, I like what Viki, so next, um, uh, uh, so on your notes, you can see under um, the quote there, knowing God, I like, I like what, they, what they say here. Knowing God is better than anything this world can offer us. Um, uh, and look, look at this quote from Psalm 4, 6 through 7. There may be many that say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us. Thou hast put gladness in my heart more than in the time that their corn and their wine increased, right? William Ames, preaching on this text, said, the highest good of people in this life cannot be obtained from goods, right? Like in an agricultural society with corn or wine. Rather, our true and highest good consists in the union and communion we have with God. The joy we find in Him overcomes by its own sweetness all human delights and happiness. Now, isn't that, isn't that a pleasant thought, right? That it is the very union and communion, the fellowship that we have with God, and that very sweetness which triumphs over all other sweet and good things that God has given to his people to enjoy. Yeah, and Packer and Knowing God said this, to kind of close talking about the pinnacle of human privilege. He said, Well might God say through Jeremiah, 
let him that glories glory in this, that he understands and and knows me. And I like what Packer says. For knowing God is a relationship calculated to thrill a person's heart. Right? There is something of the gravity of knowing God that truly arrests us, right? Thrills us, that excites us. And we'll see this as we think about, uh, think about this some more under Packer's section. Lord willing, we're going to get there. All right. So point B. So if knowing God is the pinnacle of human privilege, uh, B, knowing God is the heart of the covenant, right? So we're in Jeremiah. Go to Jeremiah 9 and look with me at verse 3 where he says in in Jeremiah 9, verse 3, they bend their tongue like a bow. Falsehood and not truth has grown strong in the land, for they proceed from evil to evil, and then notice how it concludes. And they do not know me, declares the Lord, right? But then look what God does in Jeremiah 31, right? This is is a part of the new covenant promise, right? Right? we see this, and it's beautiful in all of its glory, right? This new, prov- this new covenant promise of grace. Look with me at one of the key elements, right, that we find in this covenant. In Jeremiah 31, in, verse, in verses 33 and 34. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And notice this. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And then in verse 34, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying what? Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Right? I... There's a lot that can be said about these two verses, right? But we're going to contain ourselves to just think about and see that in the church, right, in God's covenant community, his saved society, that it is to be that all of the covenant members know the Lord, right? And it's not as in the old covenant, under the Old Testament, where there were so many who were within the old covenant, and yet did not know the Lord, right? You see this contrast here. But in God's new covenant society, we see this blessing that it is this, that they know God, right? So I think that's helpful, right? So we see that at the heart of the covenant is the restoration and the surety that this will take place. And I like the quote here that they say, Thomas Goodwin and Thomas Ball said, The knowledge of him is the most necessary and effectual means to friendship with him. So we see this idea of covenant being the way in which we then are able to commune with God, the way that God has enacted it. Our true and savory knowledge of him is made the first entrance into covenant, continuing of acquaintance and increasing of communion, right, or fellowship with him. So rightly to know him is the best reward attainable by us, right? So we see that God is going to do these things, and the purpose, or one of the purposes, is that so all of his people will know him, right, who are in covenant fellowship with him. So then third, knowing God is the essence of eternal life, right? So this, this is another one. If we were, 
So go from Jeremiah to the New Testament and go to the, to the Gospel of John, right? So I know we're kind of doing a little tennis here. But go to John and go to John chapter um, uh, 17. John 17. Where Jesus gives us clear, clear explanation about eternal life. <clears throat> and who will be willing to read John 17, verse 3? Yeah, Crystal. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the Yeah. How beautiful, right? That we know the true God through the Lord Jesus Christ, the one that the Father has sent through the Holy Spirit, right? That is eternal life, is to know God. And I like, again, what, what Beaky and um, Smalley say here, where they say, we might think that knowing God through Christ is only the means to gain eternal life, right? Which, which is true in itself, but it's much more than that, right? Where they say, but Christ identified this knowledge as life itself, the very life of heavenly glory begun on earth, right? What an amazing thought, right? Truly. So on your notes, I also include uh, John chapter 10. And what Jesus addresses there is Jesus as the good shepherd, right? And what, is, what does the good shepherd do? He lays down his life for the sheep. Actually, all right, just, just turn there real quick. We'll just go, go back. Um, I, I want to see it because it helps, it helps build. So go, go to John chapter 10. And um, in John chapter 10, yeah, this is really good. John 10, and uh, let, me, let me just read verses 14 and uh, 15. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and what's, what's the next part that follows? And my own know me. And notice that, right? There is a knowing of the Son to his people, and there's a knowing of his people to the Son, right? There's this intimate relationship that we have, this fellowship that we have with the Son. All right. We'll also read verses 26 through 28. Scroll down to verse 26, where he's responding back to some who, uh, who are accusing Jesus. And he says, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And one of the points that we're going to make is that our knowledge of God is really founded upon God's knowledge of us. Right, that God knows us, which is really, really quite an incredible thought, right? That we can glory in. <clears throat> so, remember earlier I asked the question, what is it to know God? What does that mean to know God? And so Packer, uh, J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, in chapter 3, he touches on this as he's thinking about and meditating upon John 17, verse 3, right? This is eternal life to know, to know you, the true God, and your son whom you've sent. And he says it in three, um, 
in three things, right? Knowing God is a matter of personal dealing, so we hit on that, right? That it is relational, right? It is between persons. Uh, it's more than just knowing about him. But secondly, knowing God is a matter of personal involvement. It is not simply intellectual, but it is mind and will and feelings, right? It is, it is our whole person, right? To know God in that sense is experiential, right? We know him on a deep level, not on a surface level, simply in our thoughts, right? And it positively affects us, right? In our desires and purposes, our emotions or our feelings and all these things. But then thirdly, it's not just a matter of personal dealing, a matter of personal involvement, but knowing God is also a matter of grace, right? And Packer, I thought, so helpfully says here, it is a relationship in which the initiative throughout is with God as it must be since God is so completely above us and we have so completely forfeited all claim on his favor by our sins. We do not make friends with God. God makes friends with us, bringing us to know him by making his known, by making his love known to us, right? And, and, and that's the whole idea we we're talking about in John 10, right? That Jesus knows his sheep, right? And his sheep know him. But Packer takes it another step further, right? When we look at this word to know, it communicates something. It communicates this this deepness of fellowship, right? This, 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 this deep relationship. And I like, I, I really like how he brings this out, right? Where he says, the word no, when used of God in this way, is a sovereign grace word pointing to God's initiative in loving, choosing, redeeming, calling, and preserving us, right? Here God's knowledge of those who are his is associated with his whole purpose of saving mercy. It is a knowledge that implies personal affection, redeeming action, covenant faithfulness, and providential watchfulness toward those whom God knows. Right? So, so we, we see that. We, we, we see what this idea of God knowing us right? What it's communicating, what it's implying, what's there. And I really like how Packer did this. So what page is this? So it's still on page two on on the bottom part there where it says what matters supremely. So there's three paragraphs and I tried to underline, right? Because what he's, what he's doing now is he's going to draw on what are some of the practical implications as we think about this, knowing God, right? Um, So who'd be willing to read that first paragraph? Crystal, all right, who get paragraph two for me? All right, Heather, and then who get paragraph three for me? Kareem, all right, all right. Me as a friend, one loves me, and there is no moment when his eyes off me 
Man, that's really good stuff. All right, so um, knowing God, uh, point D on your notes. So we've seen uh, knowing God is the pinnacle of human privilege, knowing God is the heart of the covenant, knowing God is the essence of eternal life, and then fourthly, knowing God is the gin of holiness. Uh, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 4, 5. So we're in John, go a couple books over. 1 Thessalonians And um, actually, let's start with, uh, we'll read verses 3 through 5. Uh, who'd be willing to read 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 through 5? Yeah, Michelle. Yeah, isn't that interesting, right? So when you talk about lack of holiness... When you talk about being given to the lusts of the flesh, right? The very things that the flesh desires. What's another way that Paul can categorize it? So they don't know God, right? Because knowing God has such an effect on us positively that it puts us in a complete opposite direction, in a different trajectory, right? That instead of being unholy and lacking self-control and given to various lusts, Instead, now, by knowing God, it propels us to holiness, right? It propels us so that we can exercise self-control and be of sober and sound mind and not in the passion of lust, right? So, so on page three on your notes, I really, I really liked, uh, what we'll do is we'll just hit that, that uh, first paragraph and then the second one I'll, let, I'll leave for, for later. But I like this. I liked how Beaky and Smalley were kind of thinking about some of the experiences of the saints in the Old Testament and seeing how they were refreshed and revived in knowing God. And look what he says. Often the turning point in a Christian's spiritual decline is a fresh view of God. God gave Job a visible and audible demonstration of glory and it silenced his complaints and satisfied his soul, right, in Job 42. Asaph found himself spiraling downward in envy and bitterness, right, as he looked at the lot of others, right? Why is it that the wicked prosper? And in my soul, I feel so cast down, right? And then, like they say, until in the sanctuary of God, he rediscovered the justice and goodness of God, right? To the point where he says, whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none that I desire more on earth than you, right? The afflicted author of Psalm 102 spends the first 11 verses complaining of his sorrows, but the turning point appears in verse 12 with the words, but you, O Lord, shall endure forever. Right, what a thought, right? That there is something for us that is refreshing, right? When we see in the Psalms over and over again, revive us, O God, right? We should see one of the key elements 
to our soul being revived, right, is taking what we've spent the last 20-something weeks thinking about God and who He is, right, and then meditating upon it, applying it to ourselves, and responding in worship, because it does that very thing. Knowing God is the engine of holiness. Now, all I want to do, um, I'm just going to spend 30 seconds with what Packer says on knowing God. So on, on page three, there's some reading material for you, if you will. There's an extended quote from Spurgeon that is just absolutely delightful, where he kind of opens up the sermon thinking about knowing God. Uh, but what I want to do is just hit real quick on your notes. So Packer identifies four ways for the knowledge of God to affect us, to affect us right? And, and he looks at the book of Daniel. It's really helpful. I would definitely commend it. Uh, the book is on Hoopla for free if you, if you don't want to buy it, right? But it's probably one worth getting for the shelf. So there's four ways in which the knowledge of God affects us or propels us. So one, knowing God produces great energy for God. Two, knowing God produces great thoughts of God or about God, right? Thinking about God. Point two, or three, or C, knowing God produces great boldness for God. And then fourthly, knowing God produces great contentment in God. And again, I'll have to commend you to um, uh, some, some, of the, some of the texts that are, that are in there. So before we come to a close, I know we've kind of, you know, hit, hit some of the landscape. What, um, uh, so what questions or thoughts or comments, right, or praises, right, do we have as we kind of like come to a close thinking about the, the knowledge of God? Slow down for a minute. Yeah, Norm. For me, the highlight today would be uh, the passage that says, this is momentous knowledge. There is unspeakable comfort uh, that God is constantly taking knowledge of me. Uh, and also, this is even better that uh, prior to, in spite of the prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery now can be the way I am so often disillusioned about myself does not point to determination to bless me. Uh, that to me is, is phenomenal. Yes. Yeah. Man, so good. All right. Oh, yeah, go ahead, Michelle. Just a little summary point. Um, uh, now, people in the background. Middle children's song, Jesus loves you. I like that. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go ahead. Let's let's thank the Lord. We'll we'll close and, and thank Him for this. Father, it's with unspeakable joy as we know You through the Son, and Him taking flesh, living, dying, and rising for us, and that the Spirit was sent, who now indwells us and draws us near, so that we have fellowship with the Father, Son, and Spirit. Father, we now pray 
that you would take what we've learned, take it to our heart, and help us, propel us to have great thoughts about you, to be content in you, to have great boldness in you, and to be revived by you with this knowledge of who you are for us in Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.